Hello there. This is Barb and Vicki G. A mother and daughter reunited after 30 years. Welcome to our podcast. Season two, new and improved with fabulous guests. Joining us to discuss how we've all become stronger in the broken places. <laughs> you fit that in beautifully, Barb. Why, thank you, Vicki. I was driving around Hollywood doing some errands and I, I noticed that something felt different inside of me. And I was like, what is this? I feel really different. And I realized that my lifelong anxiety had completely left my body. Our guest today has a fascinating story and a beautiful voice. She sure does. She's a wonderful singer and actress. Yumi Iwama is joining us for an open-hearted discussion. Her journey from New Jersey dreamer to successful actress and mother of twins. That life sounds so perfect from the outside. Oh yeah, it seems so. Welcome Yumi, it's so nice to have you here. Well, thank you so much, Vicki. Thank you, Barb. It's great to be here. It's been a while since we last spoke. Yes, but we you did take the workshop, which was nice mm -hmm. for you to be there present. I'm glad that you were able to experience that. We were just discussing how well done it was and how oh. the perfect music, the perfect words, oh. the timing. You inspired us. We're thinking of, we've been talking about how... Um, we're kind of lost a little bit with um, and scattered with what we want to offer. <laughs> yeah. And we're yeah. talking about maybe narrowing our focus and, you know, just focusing on um, the honest communication, that deep connection that we get with the podcast and our book and, yeah. and, uh, and maybe doing some sort of offering for the adoptee community. Barb's getting involved with birth mothers. I'm getting involved with adoptees and there's so much pain, Yumi. Oh my gosh. Oh, so much. I pain. hear you. I hear you. Yeah, a lot of trauma uh, on all, all yeah, sides. All sides. And then absent from the conversation, sadly, is the are the adoptive parents who I think don't even know how much pain they're in. Mm. Like they're, you know, because they all have issues around fertility and, you know, and then they're having to be this heroic parent. Mm -hmm. And and then kind of also sort of the villain in some of the dialogues. And it's just like T. Cotton on his message of, you know, call me by my true name. I am the frog swimming in the, and I am the snake. I'm the pirate. The frog. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like we are all in this together. Yeah. I think that's lovely, Vicki, um, that you're both honing what you're, focus is mm -hmm. because it is easy in this world, especially to get distracted by so many venues and <laughs> apps and ways to connect with people. But, you know, you have your niche and you have your area of expertise and you're honing it now. And that's, that's, I think that's the normal way to go. You sort of like dip your toe in a lot of different things and what, what is feeling most natural and most effortless and most useful. Wow. 
you know, the iron, the, I think what's amazing about talking to you, Yumi is, you know, I, I know your story, um, mm-hmm. but I all, I feel this great calm around you Aww. and I, and I, I, you know, it's just, I wonder like how much of that you used to even project that wasn't real. Wow. That's really generous and kind, you know, I don't always feel aligned with the outer and inner, you know, actually right now I do feel pretty calm, but I would say spent a good deal of my life being an imposter. I pretended I was white (laughs) growing up in New Jersey in a very white community. I really pretended that. And, you know, there's this author, uh, Charles Yu, who wrote uh, Interior Chinatown was a big bestseller last year. And uh, he talks about walking by a mirror, taking a glimpse of himself and saying, oh my gosh, I'm Asian. Mm. And that's how I feel a lot of times or felt growing up. I was denying a part of who I was in order to feel like I could fit in. And in doing so, I really ignored what was going on inside. Mm -hmm. And I always projected this very happy and nothing's wrong and and then it also evolved in college into this life of the party it it was really interesting i can relate to your internal Mm -hmm. dialogue but my choice to survive was to be stoic Mm. that's how i hit it part of it for me was that i already knew that i stuck out so i have to play against the shy demure Asian woman. So from about the age of nine on, when we moved to Rumson, New Jersey, I had a real feeling that I I did not belong. Having parents that grew up in Japan and possibly some genetic things that made me more have a propensity towards anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. So with all these factors together, I became a very anxious child. Yeah. It got worse in college. I remember having my several anxiety attacks, especially my senior year. Um, and then graduated, moved to Boston, and I was in a work situation that made me feel very unhappy. And I had started to get multiple anxiety attacks per day. Yeah. Wow. And so it just started to build and build and build. Mm-hmm. And um, my my college roommate was getting married and I had the mother of all anxiety attacks. My whole body was very hard. I felt like I had been dipped in carbonite, like Han Solo in Star Wars from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet, like this sense of everything is sort of becoming this solid piece of metal, Mm. including my heart, which was very frightening. I mean, I thought this is it. This is the end of me. So my friends, you know, drove sort of frantically to New Haven Hospital and they had to drop me off there. So they're going to miss the wedding. It was very strange. And then I got out of there. Very unfortunate situation, very humbling situation. Mm -hmm. My friends were doing so well coming out of college and starting their new lives independent and, you know, all over in New York and Boston. And here I was living back in New Jersey with my parents. Shame. Was that was that a big part of this? Oh, a hundred percent. A big part of our family culture is achievement and success. And on the outside, things looked really kind of shiny. Well, I'm going to put on my neuroscientist hat for a minute. Ooh, I love it. <laughs> if that's all right with you. Of course. 
So we always talk about fight or flight, but really what is most common is freeze. Mm. And you described the most spectacular version of freeze in, I mean, in a horrible way, but wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, feeling literally frozen. And that's true. It's actually a survival mechanism for a lot of animals. They will play dead. Yes. There's the most shame in humans with freeze response. <sighs> like you said, you maybe came preloaded with that response, mm -hmm. reinforced mm -hmm. the lifetime of masking up, mm -hmm. family pressure, and things. And so your body, your GI tract, your whole nervous system froze and it became the normal response for you. Mm -hmm. In fact, you were so good at it. You had sort of the ability to literally just go to sleep. Yeah. It was such a strange skill that I had. In a way, that's the superpower of like an animal because that's what they do too. When they play dead, they literally go to sleep. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when you say freeze, and I think about like the times that are sort of clear when I froze in my life, a lot of it had to do with um, times where I felt racial trauma, mm -hmm. where I felt mocked or belittled. And that, that response, that freeze response is so strong in those situations because fighting is usually not an option, right? For somebody like me, <laughs> you know? And you don't want to seem like, I mean, I guess I have walked away from situations like that, if that is flight, but you, you're caught between this place of, should I educate? Should I defend? Should I fight back with words? Right. It, and it, you, you're stuck in this frozen knot. Uh. It's traumatic. It's traumatic not to know what to do in a situation when people are having a mocking Asian accent towards you or <sighs> pulling their eyes back or saying something blatantly racist about your race or calling you a different race, right? <laughs> well, it seems like it's gotten worse too because mm -hmm. of this, this nonsense about COVID, right? Yeah, absolutely. The violence has gotten worse. I think the systemic racism has always been there. And in a way it's been a gift for it to become part of the cultural conversation where it hasn't been before. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it's taken violence for it to become part of the conversation, but I'm seeing a lot more talk, a lot more books, a lot more media addressing um, the Asian experience in the United States. And I, I think if there's any good thing that's come out of of this whole thing. It's that the, the conversations are starting to happen. And it's also allowed me to acknowledge the challenges that I faced growing up. I feel like it's named some things that I never had maybe the insight to name or the courage to name or felt I had the right to name before. Mm -hmm. I've always felt like I was less than any white person for sure. Wow. So that I had to be an extraordinary person to make up for it. Mm -hmm. And maybe that is one of the reasons I, like one of my earlier, earliest therapists after the anxiety attacks, I said, are you sure you want to be an actor? Are you sure you're not doing this because you want to be loved and accepted? But even as a very young girl, I would act out 
scenes, like even alone. I remember I was obsessed with this um, Leslie Ann Warren version of Cinderella. Mm -hmm. I thought it was so well made. Celeste Holm was in it, playing the godmother. And I would act out that whole thing. I would sing in my own little corner. I just loved it so much. So I lived in this fantasy of, of, of musical theater. And I was like, yeah, I actually do want to be an actor. I actually yeah. do want to do that. <laughs> that was my dream too. I wanted to be Shirley Jones and oh, and the Carousel yeah. and uh, and all of those wonderful musicals, the Rodgers and Hammerstein ones, right? A hundred percent, same for me. I was just enamored by by her and um, the way she portrayed. You know, she was Lori, right, in Oklahoma, and she yeah. She was Julie and Carousel. She was just beautiful. Um, and she she did. She was a teenager, and she had the nerve to approach Rodgers and Hammerstein yeah. to, to audition for them. I believe she was like eighteen years old, right? <laughs> when she did, yeah, or something, yeah. Now that's how we would love for our children to feel that kind of self-esteem, right? A yeah. little bit of ignorance, <laughs> right? But the self-esteem, we should all have that when we're 18. Right. Instead of feeling lesser than. Well, yeah. you know, and that's why, thank you so much. I just think if we could only know these things when we're younger, because <laughs> when you said that you, Barb, that you wanted to be Shirley Jones, you ha you did have mirroring. But then you, you know, of a, of a white person, you know, somebody that potentially looked like you, but then still you weren't, you know, you had to be perfect. And then you, me, you show, you didn't have any mirroring. You didn't mm -hmm. have an, a, and then I was thinking what I wanted to be when I was little was just pretty. I just didn't want to be ugly. That was, that was my childhood dream. <laughs> it's pretty low bar. Wow. You know, well, I used to will myself to be pretty too. I thought I was ugly because I was Asian, right? I just want to wipe my face off my, oh. my head. But weren't you homecoming queen? I was pro prom queen. queen. Wow. And it's funny if you and I had gone to high school together, Yumi, I would have envied and admired you because you were popular and pretty. And I thought pretty popular people were happy and perfect. And there, there were those few people that were like absolutely hands down gorgeous, right? And they oh, probably yeah. didn't struggle with wanting to be pretty or beautiful. Really, when I look at it as an adult, the kids who were popular or appeared to be popular were gregarious, outgoing, and Vicki and I were trying to hide. It's such a common experience for many people. There's always an internal experience in high school. And for especially for women and for you. Oh, actually, I think everyone's miserable in high school in their own way. <laughs> I really, it's, and well, and with oh, God, rare yeah. exception, rare exception. I know one person who says they were not miserable in high school, but that's only one. <laughs> you know, we, we need to have compassion for those we don't understand. If we can have honest conversations, we can find connection. Yeah, yeah, it's it's as much as we're different. We had all had very common, painful high school experiences, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I've gotten us off track. Uh, I'd love to hear more about your acting career, Yumi. I actually made my whole career out of playing Tuptim in The King and I. I was in seven productions of it, and some of them were tours. Oh, wow. And it's really wonderful because 
the part really suited my my vocal abilities and mm-hmm. my I just enjoyed playing that part. But in retrospect now, I'm not even sure if they could ever put that show on again. I also did um, South Pacific a couple of times. And so I was grateful for those opportunities. But now I think actors, Asian actors, have a lot more opportunity. And there's much more colorblind casting. Mm-hmm. I happened to be in the first, I believe it was the first equity production of all Asian cast of Our Town. And I may have been the first equity actress playing Emily. And so because of those opportunities, I was able to really grow as an actor because otherwise I didn't really have opportunities. Can you tell us about what an equity role is? Yes. So that's the actor's union for theater. Mm -hmm. Any union production must use equity actors. And then for the screen, um, for TV and film, it's the Screen Actors Guild. Oh, okay. Anyway, I was just really grateful for those opportunities. And there's a theater company on the West Coast called East West Players. And when I came here, I kind of avoided it because of the internalized racism. And I thought I can make it on my own. I don't need an Asian community to do work. I remember telling so many people when I was moving to the West Coast, like, why are you going to the West Coast? I said, well, I want to be on TV, you know, because they didn't have as much TV and film in the East Coast back then. Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, I'm just going to be on, I want to be on 90210 because I I saw myself there. I felt like I belong there. And like, sure enough, like one of my first auditions was 90210 and I I got it. So it's kind of funny how you can manifest Mm -hmm. (laughs) in reality sometimes. But, you know, I enjoyed it. There weren't that many opportunities for me in film and TV in mm-hmm. LA when I moved here in the 90s, but just enough to keep me going, doing commercials and film and TV and a little bit theater. You know, it was satisfying on a lot of different levels. About 12 years ago, I was doing a play. I'm very hands-on parent, so it was kind of difficult for me to relinquish that and to even find somebody I felt like I could trust. And then being on stage for the first time in, it was over 10 years, I Uh think. It was a new musical and they were rewriting choreography, lyrics, and the text every Uh day. I had to learn and then unlearn and relearn just over the amount that I could handle. And I started falling apart at the seams. I mean, I was losing it. I was stopping eating. I was anxious all the time. You know, I couldn't function well. So I went to uh, Lisa Hubler and got hypnotherapy. The first time I saw her was opening preview, I believe. And I felt definitely a difference. After seeing her, I thought, oh, something feels a little solid under me tonight. And I got through it. And then I listened to her recording over and over and over throughout the whole run and beyond. Yeah. And about a month and a half later, I was driving around Hollywood doing some errands. And I, I noticed that something felt different inside of me. And I was like, what is this? I feel really different. And I realized that my lifelong anxiety had completely left my body, that there was some kind of clarity in my brain and in my body that I'd never experienced before in a prolonged way. And so I, that day was the first day I realized that I was just, I had a different way of being and I wasn't an anxious person. I, I had identified myself as an anxious person my whole life, but I, was, I realized on that day, I'm, oh, I'm not an anxious person. I'm a person who had anxiety. It's amazing because I never came back. And that was what, that was <laughs> almost 12 years ago now. I'm a great believer in, in this process because it is for me what healed me. Yeah. 
I can now help other people because I learned from Lisa and it's been very um, rewarding work and time and time again through my own work now as a hypnotherapist, I see the deep healing that people receive from just being relaxed. I'm very grateful to have such a great teacher in Lisa Hubler to teach restorative Mm -hmm. hypnotherapy because it is non-denominational. Anybody, it's based on science through her years of doing yoga. She found lying in Shavasana was the most wonderful part of doing Mm -hmm. yoga, that place of stillness and and calm and rest. You are set up in a in a restorative yoga position, a zero gravity position where every part of your body is fully supported. And that sends a message to your body that you're safe now and that you can relax. Because if every part of your body is supported, it's like, okay, that means I can let go. Mm-hmm. So that's the first aspect of it. And then there is guided meditation, which many people find helpful on its own. Mm-hmm. And then there's hypnotic suggestions. So we insert guided suggestions to help you with that specific objective. What do you need to heal from? What is it that you need? And the combination of those three things, along with a very deeply calming music that's meant to calm your nervous system, has a very magical, I would say, even though it's based on physiology, physics, Mm -hmm. to me, it's a magical combination. And time and again, I've seen how people with years of trauma or feeling stuck or having behaviors that they know aren't serving them, maybe addictions, obsessive behaviors. I see how people in this deep relaxed state can heal because when you relaxed, the body's natural healing response is activated. And that was studied by our dear Dr. Herbert Benson, who recently passed away. In in this work, I see um, often the people come to me are the people with the most means most privileged and are um, safe enough to feel vulnerable um, to do this kind of work. So what does that leave out? Well, unfortunately, a large part of the people that get left out of this kind of work is is people of color, right? Um, People who've systemically been mistreated and don't have maybe the, the monetary or the psychological means to put themselves in this place. Yeah. I think it's a lesson for all of us, especially this past two years is that we, we need to evolve and change. We need to see where we're feeding the uh, systems of oppression yeah, and just reconfigure our ways of, of thinking and acting. We, the people. Yeah. It's yeah. all up to us individuals. Like Thich Nhat Hanh says, world peace starts with an individual. Mm-hmm. It's true. But he also talked a lot about the collective and I think yeah. that's, yeah, it's let it begin with me, but we, the other person is you. Yeah. yeah, there is no separation. That's true. Yeah. We need to have compassion for those we don't understand. So I am trying to find ways to reach out to those communities more and to offer my services in, in an affordable and accessible way. So I'm, I'm doing my best to get the message out. My hope is to you know, one day either work for a nonprofit or become a nonprofit to make it accessible and to give this healing to to people of color. And specifically because of George Floyd and the black American male experience to black American men. Beautiful. 
Thank you for all of the follow-up questions. It was nice to have a deeper conversation. Absolutely. And thank you for giving us your time. For just spending time with your beautiful voice. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Likewise, likewise with both of you. Your open-hearted uh, vulnerability. Yeah, I thank you for your vulnerability too, and also creating the space for not just me, but for so many others and, and, and doing the work that you do. I think you're making such a difference. We hope it helps somebody. Well, we all just put a little bit of good out and it does multiply, doesn't it? I think so. What an amazing conversation. Yumi is such a beautiful human being inside and out. I would have never imagined her journey. The beautiful people have perfect lives, right? <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting that our culture tells young women to seek outward validation. When, when we get a little older, we realize we need to learn self-love. Yeah. Some people figure it out earlier than others, definitely. I love how her life experience inspired a career change. Instead of bitterness, her pain brought compassion. Yes, and she's really gifted at restorative hypnotherapy. That healing work is so important in these challenging times. I get so much out of these conversations. I'm inspired, Barb and relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> Our next guest also wants to help others with her work. Seeking a message with more depth, jazz singer, composer, and pianist Carol Heffler was inspired by A Course in Miracles, and she elevates that beautiful text with a joyful, moving performance. Ah, another wonderful guest. This is the best job ever. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> Bye. Bye. This is not intended to be a substitute for therapy. We are not medical or legal experts. We share our journey only to entertain and inform. So until next time, remember to listen to each other and be kind. <laughs>